Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am a story career consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, teleseminars, and seminars. And I am very, very excited and thrilled and honored to have with me as my guest today, Catherine Fuget. Catherine, let me tell you a little bit about her. Let me, she has an incredible background. Catherine created and executive produced the flagship hit Lifetime television series, Army Wives, an ensemble drama about the relationships and struggles of a diverse group of women living on an active army base with their families. She has since directly worked with First Lady Michelle Obama, on the Joining Forces campaign, appearing on MSNBC and writing a PSA starring Steven Spielberg to further shine a light on the sacrifices our military families make. Fuget marks her second collaboration with Gary Marshall on New Year's Eve, having written the screenplay for the director's 2010 hit romantic comedy, Valentine's Day. Previously, she wrote the screenplay for the 2004 feature, The Prince and Me, directed by Martha Coolidge and starring Julia Stiles. She also wrote the largely autobiographical 2003 film, Carolina, starring Shirley MacLaine in the role of Grandma Mirabeau, who was based on Fugé's own late grandmother. Her script, The Senator's Wife, was named on the annual Top Ten Best Unproduced Screenplays list in 2006. Through her film company, Carpe Diem Films, Inc., Fuget has optioned the life rights to two different true life stories. She is currently writing and directing her first feature, Boxer for anonymous content based on one true life story, and she is executive producing and writing another true life story, An Ordinary Murder, for Lifetime Television. In 2008, Fuget was chosen as one of 50 women in Daily Variety's annual Women of Impact in Hollywood issue, and she has been elected to two consecutive terms on the board of directors of the Writers Guild of America West. Fuget has also created two nonprofits, the Writers Fund, which aids WGA writers in need, and Prize the Surprise, Inc., which focuses on the women and children from the homes affected by domestic violence. In 2010, she was feted in France by the French Film Commission as one of the top 10 screenwriters of the year. Raised primarily in Southern California with New Orleans roots, Fuget holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in theater at UCR. Wow. Very, very impressive. <laughs> How does it feel when you hear all that? Well, I, I, I think, who is that person? Because I've never met her. She sounds very interesting. When you distill it that way, it doesn't say all the insecurities and the pimples and the... 
Oh, yeah. How much do I'm I looking weigh at this beautiful It's a whole woman different person. I, for me. I love that, though. I it's love hilarious. that. That's honest, isn't mm. it? Yeah. You know, just... I, I tell writers that writers will say, well, once I have a feature or once I'm, I create a show or once I'm an executive producer, then all the insecurities will go away. And it's like, no, no, nope. no. The higher yeah. you get, the further you have to fall. <laughs> I said to someone recently, actually, a friend of mine is filming a new movie. She's an actor. And I said, the thing about anything new is it's like falling in love for the first time. You're starting over. Yes. You're nervous. Yeah. You're not sure if they're going to like you, if you're going to like them, if they're going to see your flaws or see your beauty. And, and you're excited. And there's the, all this anticipation. But you start off in that energy no matter how many projects you start or yeah. how many you've done everyone starts out like a first date yeah but that's a huge theme how interesting that you say that because when i think about when i studied all of your projects and i have to say i'm a huge huge fan of valentine's day huge fan thank you i love love the movie and i love what you did with it and i love your voice Okay. in it and I love the storylines and the characters and uh, I also love Army Wives um, to name a few of your projects that I've seen I I did look at the idea of your common themes seem to be like first kiss first meeting someone the idea of falling in love like that it wouldn't you say that is a common theme that you follow within your writing I, I definitely when I approach every project it it's the first thing I think of is what do I want to give as a gift so when people leave the theater, they can apply that to their lives. And oh, it's usually yeah. something along those lines of take the opportunities when they come. Yes. If it's love, especially if it's love. If right. It's, if it's picking up the phone and making that bold choice. It's always about boldness and speaking your truth and, and understanding it doesn't mean you're not scared or you're insecure and those things, but you do them anyway. Courage isn't about I suddenly am totally okay with this right. you're still afraid but you have the courage to do it I especially love for love like now would you say that you grew into that like when you think back to your first project with regards to courage I would say I mean one of my first projects um you know is not a, a film not of, of course not made was sort of my version of the breakfast club but it still had that message it was high school seniors of realizing that this world you're in in high school is not the be in you know it'll still be about going forward and defining yourself right so it's i've always had this um urge to 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 give some sort of message that i think the bottom line is always be who you are there's only yeah. one you you yeah. have a unique set of of stardust in you that no one else has right and if you can That's be that message. the world is a better world because you're being exactly who you are right you know and that it, there's always some version of that and, i would and, say yeah when i think about the undertones uh, in the underdog is definitely a part of it yeah yeah i think that's great is um now as far as your body of work in features and television if you were to look back and kind of give us a brief of your story what would it be uh my personal story or how i got to the i actually wise? i want to dive into both oh dive into both. i do um, well i think i mean i've i've tried to find an eloquent way to say this but it's my theory that most people who are artists have had some sort of difficult childhood yeah i insist I on that now totally because agree. everyone i have met has had it mm -hmm. and i think what happens is you want to 
understand character more and people more and their choices more. And you either become a psychologist or a therapist or you right. become an artist. And right. that, and I think that's what happens. And it's a need from exploring uh, people, like I said, their choices. And also, as a writer, it gives you an opportunity to write a different ending than you had, right. I think, sometimes. An ending that would be inspiring. Uh, I... Um, I mean, I was thinking recently, I remember when I was about nine or 10, I grew up with two alcoholic parents right. with domestic violence in the house. And that wow. was a very, obviously a challenging upbringing, but can you say it was bad or good? It is what it was. And I am who I am because of it. And I've had to learn to embrace that part of it. Like it gave me certain lessons and certain drive that I may not have had otherwise. But one of the things I learned from it was you can't fix things. You can't change things. But when you're a writer, you can. Right. You can give this message of hope that yeah. perhaps you would have used. Because I remember, too, I was about 9 or 10, writing a letter to Charlie's Angels. Right. Any angel, would any one of you three have an opportunity to come here and, and, and fix the situation I'm in? And I never got a letter back. And I realized, oh, no one helped me. I have to help myself. Oh. But even at 10, I was a I, the symbols of three women who were Charlie's angels out there kicking butt and standing up to, to, to men, perhaps, or, or to injustice or fighting for what was right is sort of what got me on the path I'm in. Right. So I tend to think that most writers, artists, directors, novelists had difficult childhoods. Yeah. I would, I think it's more have them than don't because yeah. you're on a certain ladder and everyone I've met has had it. Yeah. So I've learned to sort of accept it and embrace that everything happens for a but reason. But you've used it professionally. Yeah. Like I would, we were talking about brands earlier and how I feel your brand is so well defined. And my brand is all about learning how to go within mm -hmm. for story because all of the answers are there. So it's about learning how to access your truth and then how to add fiction to your truth in your story. I would say that's true in life. Period. That yeah. all you do have all the answers within, yeah. and you're every you know everything already. Right. Yet we'll we'll either not want to know it, right. or stay in the tornado and and spin and spin and try to figure out somebody else, or we'll ask for advice from our top ten best friends, or but we actually already always know. Yeah. I think that's a true. I would in agree life. with you. That's nothing to do. With no, I would agree. I would agree with you. Like when friends will say, "Oh, I need advice," I, I, I've looked at them and said, "You know the answer," mm -hmm. because you know that they do, and mm -hmm. and it is an interesting thing when you reflect back, because mm -hmm. that's all they wanted. Just like mm -hmm. you with the Charlie's Angels letters, like really looking at what, did, which is a beautiful story, by the way. I, I love that. That's so honest and raw is is like what were you hoping on the other side of that mm -hmm. you know um versus what and i think that you telling me just that little piece of information makes me understand so much about your voice and your story mm -hmm. and and it looks you know that is the development of your voice which i i think as you say it is what it is so you learn to accept and figure out how do you utilize to send out a stronger message, which on the page you can, mm -hmm. which uh, which I think is great. What did now? I know you started your career working at ICM mm -hmm. and working as an assistant PA, writer's assistant at 20th Century, and then moving into an executive role at Columbia. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Well, I think. 
what happened for me is I had a degree in theater, mm-hmm. and I loved theater. I was in theater since I was six, and that was my escape, and it was a, a beautiful life for me, actually. And it was in a very small school at UC Riverside where I was nurtured. Everyone knew your name. I did every role, and I felt very loved and protected. Then I got my degree, and it was like, well, what can I do but waitress with this degree? <laughs> Right. What am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> and I, I, and I realized I, it, it felt so far fetched to go move to New York and be try to be a famous theater person. I, I didn't quite have the courage yet to live in New York. It seemed very big and very far away. And and I realized if I was going to stay in Los Angeles, I had to move into film and television because that is more what the industry is here. I did, however, work in theater here. I worked at the Hudson and I worked at okay. Bang. The Tamarind. I did work at a lot of theaters, but I think I got paid $200 a week. Right. You know, you're not going to make a living at that. And I uh, got a job as a PA and then at ICM working for Barry Mendel, who really was wonderful to me. Like, he truly, he taught me the business. And he's an artist himself. He's now a producer, of course, but... He was a guitar player and very artistic. And you realize, like, everyone almost on any facet of the film business still had an artistic dream. They do. They do. I agree. And he he was no exception. And what I learned there, I think that was the most beneficial, was how the business worked, and it demystified it. Yes. It's one thing to see, like, my name or someone's name up there in the movie theater. And when you're young and just graduated, they feel so far away from you, and they feel magical, and they must fly, and... They must have a magic wand because how do they get their name up there and they have a talent you don't have. And I think the chasm between you and them is so large. Yeah. Then when I worked at ICM and I was talking to them every day and I saw how the business worked and I understood it better. It's like the, you, you get how it works and then the chasm gets much smaller and you realize, hey, I can do that. Yeah. These people are human. They're insecure and neurotic and they yep. they just sit they down. And all they do is sit down and do it every day. That The difference between... The, the two of you is really they sit down and do it every day. You're right. They do the work. And, right. and despite themselves almost, for some of them I've met. And that was the greatest thing I learned at ICM really was to demystify us versus them. Right. And to understand how the business really works. And, and it's been a beneficial lesson all the way till now where even getting notes on a project or, or knowing how to pitch something, I know how it works on their side now. Yeah. You know, that, like, for example, in a pitch, people go in and pitch 40 minutes, and they've decided, like, in the first three minutes, they're going to buy it or not buy it. Right. They know, what they, they know what they need. You know, you can come in there, and you can pitch them the most beautiful Audi, and if they don't want an Audi and they want a, a, a Porsche, they're going to buy a Porsche. It doesn't matter what you sell them. Yeah. You know, if they want a banana and you're selling them an apple and it's the prettiest apple, they're going to they're gonna pass because they need a banana. I mean, right. it's, so that that's simple, but until yeah. you get that, I think you— you know, it's also like actors. They they want a certain actor, and it doesn't matter how well you do. Sometimes they have to fit this because they know who the other actor is, and yeah. it's an ensemble. And yeah. so there's all these things that you don't know. And once I think you understand how the business works better, you're a stronger person because of it. Right. I I had I, I recently spoke to USC students, and I said the same thing. I said any job you can get that shows you the business side, right? Because it's show business, as I they agree say. With you. You know, it's business. And yeah. if you can understand how the business works, you're going to be a better writer, yeah. even though it's an artistic yeah. job. You're yeah. going to understand it better. You yeah. understand when to push, when to pull. Because com- everything comes full circle. Yeah. 
Like everything informs every other part of the business. And what you're mm -hmm. talking about is setting your foundation. Yeah. I think the best job, I, I they always ask me that when they graduate yeah. from college. I said the best job is some sort of assistant job. Yeah. A, a studio, I mean, an agency, I felt was more, I learned more there simply because they know what every studio is doing. They have the bigger span. Yeah. yeah. Whereas a student, when I worked at a studio, you only know what your studio is doing. And in fact, the other studios don't want you to know what they're doing nor do the agents want to tell you because they would be you, you know betraying the other confidences they have from every studio whereas the agent is the hub is the middle of the wheel they right. know what every single person's doing they know competing projects they know who's doing what and it's the fastest way to learn I think, uh, is on yeah a, i would agree an agent desk yeah. You have to, I think, like for me, I know, I remember when I was deciding between being in the mailroom at CAA and working for Aaron Spelling, it was more, it was a financial decision. But I, but I think working in a production company has as much value, mm -hmm. but just on a different side. So I, I think yeah. that's great advice. Now, and, he, and we touched on this a little bit earlier. I, I had the question of what inspires you to write as well as how much of your truth do you use in your writing and what is your process of mining this? Well, I would say almost all of my truth is in everything because I've been, it, it, you look at it two ways. I've been blessed in that most everything I've been paid to do, I generated it. Mm -hmm. I've done very few uh, rewrites or something. And even when I've done them as a, as a, gun for hire, as they say. It's only because I truly believed in the project. I've never, I've been lucky that way, but I, I'm more of an aggressive, proactive person anyway. I feel like it's my responsibility to, to write things or, or to create things that say what I need to say. Because mm -hmm. I think the older I get, and now I have a five-year-old daughter, so I'm even more aware of my mortality. Right. Is is that, like the amount of projects I can do are finite. Yeah. You know, the world's getting, you know, the dreams are getting smaller and smaller, and I feel more compelled to, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to do things that don't say what I need to say. And so I'm aggressively generating them. And one thing I always say to myself is, um, you know, what have I done today to make my dreams come true? And the other one is, if, if this was my last day, have I said what I needed to say? And yeah. so I'm always focused on what more do I need to say in case this is my last day. Yeah. Do you know, I think that shows up. When I think about, <laughs> it's interesting for me because most of the, a lot of the writers who I interview on this podcast, I know I have some kind of history with, I've helped staff them or, or know them through people. And, um, with you, this is a brand, I'm meeting Catherine for the first time. So it, it is so, it's always so fascinating for me to hear someone's personal story and then apply it against their talent. And like, I, I would say where your gift lies is your ability to interpret and absorb life and then put it on the page in a way that does send out a message to the greater good as far as you are not alone in how you feel. Like in Valentine's Day, I think it came across so well. Like when I really thought about how, where you started, which it almost felt like how we all view Valentine's Day in a fantastical way with kind of false expectations that will never really truly be fulfilled and how through the journey, it was all about finding the beauty and the reality of what is versus what isn't. 
and and the acceptance of that. And I think your story kind mm-hmm. of speaks to that. So I think, you know, it. I almost feel like I'm writing a book right now called Change Your Story, Change Your Life. And a big thrust of it is in my own life and in writing, I find that the journey goes from the ego to the spirit to the philosophical. So it's starting when a story starts, you want to achieve the goal for selfish reasons. And then through the journey, you move into the spirit. And then as you come into the awakening, you move into how can I achieve this goal so it's not just about me, but it's about the greater good. And it seems like um, it seems like what you're talking about as far as your daughter and facing your mortality, that you're moving into the part of life is have I said everything I want to say? And, you know, how I, I think your writing definitely affects people. Well, thank you. Yeah, I do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. I mean, it I'm... affects them positively and negatively, I've heard. <laughs> but well, someone said to me, when you take a stand, right. that's the reaction you want. Right. When you don't take a stand and you, you kind of try to ride the middle road and right. be very vanilla, then you really won't get responses. When you know you've swung to one side or the other and really made a stand and made choices, that's when you will then get right. negative responses. So it's actually an odd way sort of Tell a compliment. Tell me some of the negative responses. Well, I'd be curious about I know you, whenever you write something, you're putting your heart on your mm-hmm. sleeve and you're putting it out for everybody to pull apart. What has your experience been with as well, far as negative criticism or negative experiences? Well, I've had plenty. I've had hate mail like anybody. Right, right. <laughs> it's usually, I mean, one of my favorite was I have a warped worldview. Something right. about the two W's, warped worldview. No way. And, uh, you know, it's whenever I'm accepting, like, the gay storyline in Valentine's Day, I got a lot of negative responses, but also got, uh, glad I got a letter from Glad thanking me for the positive betrayal of it. An yeah. out gay NFL football player, which had never happened before. Right. It hasn't happened in real life, much but less. But that's what they're so afraid of. Like yeah. playmakers, they say, went down yeah. because they were exposing too much. Well, yeah. so things like that. Like yeah. you realize you push, you, you get negative responses yes. when you push buttons. Yeah. Which means you've done something right as well because right. you pushed a button. And that's what I've had to to... to to realize, like even in New Year's Eve, which is has such a strong spiritual message, people react negatively to that. So when you write a spiritual message, I think in general, right, you you have to know you're going to get more negative, more darkness. The more you you write toward the light, the more right. the darkness reacts, and you'll get negative, dark comments. So right. I had more negative comments about New Year's Eve than I did Valentine's Day. Right, you know, so, and I'm just I've become. Like I was saying to you down, as we were walking in, actually, I said I got nominated for, for a Razzie, which I just found out. And I got nominated against Twilight, Transformers, right. Right. Jack and Jill, and Bucky Larson. So I'm trying to figure out I, if if you can either be the top five best and get right. nominated for an Oscar, you can be the top five worst and get nominated for a Razzie. And once you get nominated, then you want to win. Yeah. And so I said I want a trophy because <laughs> it, it means I succeeded somewhere. I managed to be the top five of something. Right. And then I looked at my competition and I felt sort of like I, I'm not Meryl Streep here. I'm not going to win because I <laughs> – I don't think I was the best at being the worst. I have a bad feeling that Jack and Jill is going to take me down. Right. And I'm going to lose my Razzie because <laughs> I'm going to get a trophy. See, but that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, it's, it's just I it's think, unfortunate. No, I think that's great. <laughs> 
Um, let's see now. Oh, I would say like one thing I really noticed because you had in your film, and I have to admit when I was reading the synopsis for New Year's Eve, uh, in Valentine's Day, there were many lines that I wished I could write down in the theater. And then in New Year's Eve, in looking at the synopsis, there were lines that like, I swear, like reading the synopsis, I almost teared up, you know, mm -hmm. like I was just like, mm -hmm. oh my God. How, what advice would you have as far as dialogue and how did you grow into writing such strong dialogue? Well, it, it's another, you know, so definitely a stylistic choice. Like, I, I think because I came from a theater background that I would prefer to write subtext and right. let the actor act it. And right. then you get into big, broad, you know, mainstream commercial. And I don't mean that negatively, but bigger movies and, and they trust subtext less. Yes. You realize that like in theater, because the actor's in front of you and you're in a room, you can feel their emotions when they're talking against the line. Right better than you can on film and I don't think it's trusted as much but I try to write more subtext and, and then as the development process goes you end up writing it more direct um, but as far as dialogue what I've learned is great actors like I had some great actors yes, in both movies obviously and I've been really blessed with that they don't need all the, the lines down yeah it's usually it's usually the studio and People who are reading it need to read it because they haven't seen the actor perform it. They right. don't know how it's going to come off. So you end up overwriting for, for them, and then the actors will, will bring so much more to it. And then it's such a joy then. So it's sort of a, it's a little bit of a trick. But I think for me, I'd rather just write. Like, like the line, there's a line. There's two great moments. My favorite two moments in, in, in New Year's Eve are Hillary Swank's speech. And um, Hillary is a personal friend of mine, and... Uh, her speech, some of those words Hillary had said at her birthday party. Right. And I sat there and I was at her party and I wrote it down. And when she saw the script and it had things that she had said, I, I said, I need you, I need people to kind of know who you are. Right. As much as they need to know who your character is because they were starting to blend even for Hillary. Right. And it was a great moment because oh, she was that. saying beautiful lines. You don't always have that opportunity, yeah. of course, of knowing who your actor is going to be. But I was able to sort of, you know, Hillary's a very spiritual person and she wants to make, I mean, her choices obviously in movies have always been very tough. She's yeah. not, she doesn't shy yeah. away from anything I agree. hard. And But that speech and then the speech at the end given by, um, uh, I just had a Josh. Okay, I just lost my mind. The guy married to Fergie, Josh Duhamel. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's like yep. I just my Josh mind. Josh Duhamel. Yes. He gives the speech of that famous quote that I have in a book in a uh, a paperweight that's on my desk that says, "You know, what would you do if you knew you could, you know you would not fail?" Yeah. And that's the I have message. that on my website. Yeah. And that message I wanted so much to get out of, if you know, we're we stop ourselves far more than anyone in this world. Right. It's us. We yeah. stand in our own way, and everyone will say we're your, you know, you are your own worst enemy. But really, if you can get out of your own way, and someone said, "Okay, I'm going to give you all the money in the world, write any script you want," what would you really write? Yeah, you know, what would you really do if you knew you weren't going to fail at this? And right. then, then go do it. Go yeah. do it because because you, if you think you're going to fail, you're going to fail. If you think you won't, you won't. And yeah. Those messages I was trying to get out, especially in a movie about New Year's Eve, which is about fresh starts and new beginnings and second chances and all the things that the, the, the holiday signifies. So here was an opportunity to say, 
go do it. Right. I mean, my the biggest compliment I got, the critics hated that movie to the point where I couldn't, I don't read the reviews, my agents won't let me, and no one will, because they're so depressing and how mean they are. I mean, right. the, the almost personal attacks, and you think, is that really necessary? But it is. It's where we've gotten, and people try to outsnark each other, and they forget that people believed in something and worked hard, and it's one person, but they, they have a lot of power, and I think they abuse it personally, but... One thing I've learned is uh, the biggest compliment I got was really when I heard from several different of my friends all across the country that the end of the screen, at the end of the movie in the movie theater they were in that people applauded, oh. and that is pure, that's yeah. spontaneous, that's theater. Yeah, that people, the people well, sitting in the seat. I'm telling you, if it's seat, anything like uh, Valentine's they Day, they applauded, I know I'm and gonna like it. <laughs> I that brought me to tears yeah. faster. That that the the person in the theater could give a rat's ass what the critics said and showed up anyway and found something that moved them to put their hands together and applaud. And that's really the best compliment I'm ever going to get as a writer. Do you know, the interesting thing is, um, on my book, Storyline, I got two, uh, my first two negative reviews, and they were scathing. And I, I remember reading them, and you go through so much emotion because you're sitting here going, how could they not have seen my message? How could they mm -hmm. have missed it so completely and totally? And how could they? And I remember I posted it on Facebook. I was like, oh, I got my first negative review when the first one came out. And, and someone's like, well, I don't see where the problem is. You got 29 five-star reviews and you got one negative review and then another negative one came. And, and it was... I, I love the way that you're processing negativity because I think that the second one didn't hurt as much as the first one because mm -hmm. it was just like they don't see it, whereas other people can see it all the way through. And so, like, I would look at, I can tell from loving Valentine's Day like I did that I would love New Year's Eve as well. So I think, and, and I want to tell the audience so you have an idea about the type of stars that Catherine attracts, clearly with her writing and, and working with Gary Marshall. On um, New Year's Eve, she had uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, Jessica Beale, Ashton Kutcher, Zach Efron, Halle Berry, uh, Carrie Ellis, Alyssa Milano, Milano Seth Myers. Um, did I say Michelle Pfeiffer? Um, so that just gives you an idea. And then on Valentine's Day, she had Jessica Alba, Kathy Bates, Jessica Beal, Bradley Cooper, Eric Dane, Patrick Dempsey, Hector Elizondo, Jamie Foxx, Jennifer Garner, Topher Grace, Anne Hathaway, Ashton Cook, Kutcher, Queen Latifah. I mean, my God, you know, I mean, if if that doesn't tell you that you are writing from your heart and people want to say your words, I mean, I don't know what does, you know, how did, what, what went into the casting? Like when you're writing, do you, do you think of specific people? Um, or? Hmm, that's a hard one. I think I had worked with Shirley MacLaine on Carolina. She played my gram the grandmother role. Right. And um, so when I was writing Valentine's Day, I, I had Shirley in mind for that right. for the character she played, which was my other grandmother. Right. Which was the irony is wow. now both of Shirley has played both my grandparents. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. And as I had mentioned in, in New Year's That's Eve, wild. I was thinking of 
Hillary always for that role because she was a friend of mine, and I knew. I don't even think I listed Hillary. Yeah. Well, yeah. Hillary Swank in, in New Year's Eve. She, yeah. The one thing her mother had said is, "Please write a role that my daughter doesn't die in the end." So I tried. I was like, I'll do my I very best to not love it. Kill kill her off at the end. So it, apparently she gets. You know, if you think about it, she's killed off quite a bit. But um, yes, she is. And I was a big fan of Glee, so I wrote the role for Leah Michelle, who was in Glee, and right. and I was lucky that both of them uh, took those parts. And so you did have yeah. a general idea, but only were, those. What few, about Ashton Kutcher? What is your n- relationship? I really, I mean, so many of those actors. A lot of them are Gary. You know, right. Gary has the relationship, and it's through the casting process. And unless you know ahead of time, which you don't always know, right? You know, it, it's you're still writing it as a character. Yeah. Um, but the fact that, like, when I look at people who return to your films, mm-hmm. that's where I th- I say, okay, that's a huge compliment. Well, I think we everyone's such a fan of Ashton, and he he's a great improviser yes. as well, and he's yeah. he's just a a good guy. Yeah, you know, he's just and um, I believe that they said we gave him the script and said just tell us which role appeals to you, right? You know, and we'll right. kind of uh, work it your way. And that was the one he chose. Wow. Was the one he's in. He he found that one. Plus, I think something about. He had played, because if you were to look at Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve, he would have chose from based on the Valentine's Day. He would have picked the Josh Duhamel character as probably the more right uh, similar role, and he chose someone completely, you know, on the other side, which so. I think says a lot. Yeah, I do. I think that's great. All right. Well, with that, we are going to take a break. We are here with Catherine Puget, who wrote the movies New Year's Eve, Valentine's Day, and created the show Army Wives. We will be back in a moment. You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. We are back with Catherine Puget. Let me ask you about, um, because it seems like this one was more, even more autobiographical. Now, is it called Carolina, or was the name changed? Okay, so Julia Stiles was in... Both movies? Both movies. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Great. I love that. A lot of loyalty with the actors. I think that's great. Tell me about Carolina. Uh, Carolina is, it was probably, I think it's the second script I ever wrote. And I. it seems like when you first sit down and write, you need to get out your own story or something that's happened to you that's, that's very personal, which I think motivates people truly to say I need to write my own story you'll hear that a lot right and and that was my sort of my upbringing and of course things are fictionalized and cobbled together but it was really about this strong southern grandmother character played by Shirley MacLaine who took on raising her son's three kids when she thought she was done raising kids yeah and that's kind of what happened in in my life and I'm one of three daughters like like it was and um and I'm the oldest, like Carolina is. The three girls are named after the states that their that's father great. was in. Yeah. And that's the postmark, Carolina, Georgia, and Maine. Right. So that's the girl's name. Wow. The postmark, well, here I am, babe. Did you have the baby yet? And wherever it was stamped is what she named the kids. Oh, my um, God. So there's a lot of Southern comedy and humor. Right. And, 
it is an interesting movie because it's a it's a very strong southern dialect and, and we had a beautiful director of um marlene goris of antonia's line but she was uh you know not american and mm-hmm. i think the southern rhythms of the comedy that i don't know that was the best match although it's shot beautifully but the people in the south when they see it truly love it and yeah. truly know it they know yeah. who these people are they read real to them if and they they even think they're pulled back because it is true yeah but everyone outside of the south i think you know those speaking of reviews you'll have the reviews from people who weren't southern this is over the top people like that aren't like this and it's a cliche of the south and everyone in the south is ha 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 i know these people <laughs> so you have these two right it was very personalized it seems and it's another movie that plays a lot on uh, pay, per, pay channels. I, I hear people still discovering it. Um, and it was a Miramax independent film. and But it was my life story. Yeah. You know, and that's my life. And when I first saw it, I thought it was, a, speaking of Valentine's Day, it was a Valentine to my grandmother. It was a way to say Aww. thank you for raising three more kids when you were done yeah but you took on that responsibility and, and then was that a result of yeah. the abuse that you yeah about? and and the yeah. alcoholism and and yeah. not being able to parent and we went to live with my grandmother who uh you know was was a <laughs> you know very charismatic and morally um questionable and everything right. in the south hard drinking hard right. gambling but loved her kids something fierce and would Aww. not let them go anywhere else but stay with blood and right. decided to raise three kids when she was done and that's that's huge it was my way of saying thank you and, oh, and what the that. sadness of that is she knew it was in production she knew shirley mclean was playing her but she passed before it ever came out so she was never able to see it yeah but she helped me with a lot of the dialogue like i would call her up and say okay grandma i need you to say you know like there's one line where um the boy that Carolina thinks she should like. It's really about Carolina. This is the boy I think I should like because right. he's responsible and respectable and looks the part. And I've never seen that in my life because it's been basically the white trash South. Right. And then here's the best friend it doesn't who fits in with everybody, but that can't be the right one. I've got to go for the 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 beautiful suit as they call him he's right. a beautiful designer suit but she doesn't know where to wear him but there's a scene and I would call my grandmother and say well he's very proper and perfect and she says oh you mean he's he's uh, stiffer than a preacher's prick at a wedding and I'd go yeah grandma that's, <laughs> that's what I exactly meant that's what exactly I mean. what I meant and so I would just type it down stiffer than a preacher's prick at a wedding that's how he was and so. But that so she, a lot of her actual dialogue and lines were in there, especially the line where she talks about because my grandmother was engaged in an extramarital affair for most of her life, right. but talking about the morality of that and and that whole scene is almost word for word as she described it, and so it's a way that she lives forever, and maybe that's why we all create art because it's yeah. something that'll live beyond us. And she never saw the movie, but. She she's left a, her She's imprint. alive. Yeah. People who see that Three movie yeah. feel like they knew her. I think, oh, I have to look for that movie. On that note, as far as love, tell me what has your experience of love been in your own life? In my own life. Well, yeah. you know, I would say like any child of two alcoholics and I have my abandonment issues and my trust issues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in my, mm-hmm. But, um, I think I'm I'm a hopeless romantic. I'm a cancer, which people tell me is the most romantic sign and very deep. And 
I I would say I do have a big uh, romantic streak, and and I love love and romance more than anything. I do think that's that is that, shows, yeah. that is what life is about, yeah. and um, you know I, I'm in a relationship right now that I'm lucky where that's um, that's loved back and appreciated back, and I had chosen relationships early on where it wasn't. Where right. as my a friend of mine said recently. You can't be in the business of convincing someone to be with you. Right. And once you start getting into that, that's your childhood. Yeah. Convincing them to stop drinking, convincing them to be a better parent, convincing them to do their job when, in fact, you can't convince anybody of that. And yeah. and I would say my, I did a lot of trying to convince in the earlier, yeah. uh, earlier part of my life. And now I've realized... The person who shows up and, and is there standing beside you and sees you and gets you, that that is the right person. Right. <laughs> but it's usually the one who doesn't see you, doesn't get you, hasn't shown up that you want to fight for yeah. to make to convince them yeah. that they should see you. And 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 that shift happened in my life. And that's I'm a great that. shift. I like that shift. I think that that's good for everyone to hear about. Um Let's see. Okay, now tell me about tell me about Army Wives. Just as far as like, what was the experience? Now I know you worked on Xena mm -hmm. as well in mm -hmm. TV. What was your experience of creating a show and like going from inception of the idea through the series? Well, uh, you know, on Xena, I obviously was I didn't create it, so I was able to come in and just be excited about the show and the themes and. And do my very best, but you don't have the obviously the responsibility that you do as the creator and executive right. producer. Right. But so I'm I'm grateful for Zena because they were the they hired me to do television when I was a feature writer and they took a chance on me. And most people there at that time it was harder to to go from one side to the other, no matter which way you were going. Now, it was. You're now right. of course it's much easier. People right. are feature writers are looking at Mad Men and Breaking Bad and 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 Burn Notice and house and saying I can do that you yeah know, that's that's really exciting I want right. to do Sopranos yeah. you know so people are uh, and, and Homeland and they're going yeah. I wish I had done that yeah and yeah. people are like and I want to write that and then I'm going to go you know I'm going to go write a movie for Paramount and so people it, it, it's which is nice the lines aren't so strong and that that you're that's almost the European model which has always been in place people right. wrote anything theater features tv actors did all three and no one looked they just looked at the role, and it took a long time for us to get there, and I think we finally are there, and I think that's exciting for all the artistic community because you can find the best I agree. home to tell yeah. your story now. Yeah. You know? And, and that, that, to me, is really thrilling. But as far as Army Wives, when I received it, it was a nonfiction manuscript, and it was written by a journalist who had gone to Fort Bragg and interviewed uh, many people there and was writing a story about a series of murders that in, in real life had happened. And I believe they were on 2020 or Dateline. They were on a news show. And um, she was trying to figure out, you know, I think I believe it's a six-week period for wives were murdered, one each week, in really horrible manner. Wow, I didn't realize. Yeah, and it became a story. Like, what uh -huh. happened when, right. these, when these soldiers were coming back that they would all snap at the same time? place same yeah. Fort Bragg same time same coming off the same war and 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 what what are we doing wrong that they aren't and it actually turned out that we don't we weren't assimilating them properly from a war situation to right. a home situation right. and now we have an assimilation process and a return home process 
in place to to stop that. But when I read it, it was a series of, you know, it was a nonfiction book. Right. And I had had a buck slip on it um, and no explanation. And I read it thinking it was for a feature. Because why else would I? I mean, I'd only written Xena and I'd right. since then written several te- te- uh, uh, feature films and I was known as a feature writer. And I went in and I said, you know, I was re- I'm really drawn to this. I have relationships with several actresses and this would be a great uh, ensemble and, and telling these stories. And it's a world I didn't know because I did not grow up in the military. But I, like many people, drove by a, a, an army base or, a, I mean, army, a fort or a navy base, and I would see the gates, and you do wonder what goes on back there. Just like prison. You know, yeah. it's an enclosed world that you're not a part of. You're yeah. an outsider, and you don't get in there unless you're supposed to be in there. And I was very taken with the tradition and the history of the military and the stories they were telling, and they were from a female point of view, because it was unfortunately about these tragedies. But I went in and I started pitching a feature. And it was about midway. And the executive, Deb Spera, at the time yeah. said, said, this is a TV series. <laughs> what are you wow. pitching? And I said, a TV series? No one said that. It doesn't say that on the buck slip. And, it, and that was kind of an interesting thing, because I approached it as a feature writer. And she had never heard a pitch approach that way. She would only heard TV right. pitches. So it ended up working on my behalf. And Deb oh, and yeah. I worked together. And um, we were able to, you know, it was sold to, it was actually sold to ABC. It was going to be an ABC show. Interesting. And and through the grapevine, I've learned that whether this is true or not, so no one can. This right. is my, was what I heard. You know, right. the great the my grapevine said yeah. that they were still concerned it would um, conflict with Desperate Housewives, despite right. being completely different in the military. They were concerned it would right. it, it, it would, would be, be the compliment. Yeah. It would be too much of a um, in competition of so. They even though we developed it and we wrote the script, which was all fiction, not based on the murders um, at all, and using the world of the army, the post itself, and the different levels of the different classes or the, the class structure of the military. Um, we pitched a fictionalized version of it. Um, it was put into turnaround, and then I actually went until Valentine's Day. Wow. And I thought, well, that was an interesting foray into TV. I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> I went until Valentine's Day, and then I went, as they say in the South, I went and got myself pregnant. Yeah. My two fra- favorite phrases in the South are, I went and got myself pregnant, and I went and got some, she went and got herself killed. <laughs> she went and got herself pregnant. That's it. Those are the two, those are very two common phrases. Like, you do that. In the South. On, yeah. yeah. I went on my, by myself and got myself pregnant, and um, I was pregnant. So Valentine's Day was writing the first draft of Valentine's Day. Um, my daughter was born in December, and I think they called me in September and said, we're going to shoot the pilot, and we basically traded you to Lifetime, who was, who was partially owned by ABC and Disney. Right. And do you want to do it at Lifetime? And it's like being a baseball player. Right. You've been traded. Right. You're now here. This is How your new home. How do you feel about yeah. that? And I went, well, okay. And I met with the Lifetime executives, and they were very supportive. And we shot it in September. Um it got picked up. I think it it, the, the, it got picked up. I wrote episode two. I hit send on my computer, and I had to be at Cedar Sinai an hour and a half, picked up my suitcase, 
Went to Cedar Sinai, got my epidural, oh and my, my daughter God. was born. I think I delivered at eleven thirty. Showed up at Cedars at one thirty. My daughter was born at three thirty one. That oh same my day, <laughs> it was like the most. There's episode two. I'm gonna I'm gonna take just a few hours and go have this baby, and then I'll be back. And that's I, about how it happened. I hear. I can't even tell you how many stories I've heard like that. Like literally, where people are rewriting on top of their stomach. Right before labor begins, mm-hmm. like it's oh my god, that it was is that wild. Yeah. And then, uh, but what a gift! Everything yeah. came, the universe came into play. It was play the birth at the of right two time. things: yeah. the birth of my first television series and the birth of my first child, and they were right on top of each other. Oh your, my your personal god. and professional birthings. Yes, it's like having twins, but not. I <laughs> think that is pretty, great. pretty, pretty incredible experience, and that's how. It and happened. now it's interesting. So. The fact that you um, you worked with Michelle Obama, which stemmed from that, and then you work with women and children from homes affected by domestic violence. Mm-hmm. How has that informed your writing? Like like going out there and really kind of being a part of the message that you know and you've lived in some way or another, and then going out there and getting involved. Well, I think. Obviously, when you read something and you write it a pilot or you write a TV show, you're you're sitting at home in a room by yourself in your pajamas, just writing from your heart. You have no idea if this is funny to anyone else or if it's meaningful to anyone else or if anyone else is touched. You just don't. You're right. doing the best you can, but you can't really see the bigger picture because you're, as I said, you're sort of the architect of plans for a house. You know, right. you're doing, you're drawing it, you're writing what feels good, what feels right, but all these other people are going to add something to it, then it becomes a whole different thing. And that's the beauty and the mystery of filmmaking. You know, yeah. some you can have the best beautifully written script and it could not, you know, and it cannot turn out into the into a good movie. And the reverse happens. You can have a script that's kind of average, but somehow everything goes your way and it's the best yeah. movie ever. And it's, and it's a very interesting process because it's like a team. I, I say sometimes it's like a football team. You can draft the best team on paper but if that team as real people if they don't get each other and they don't rehearse and have the same goal there you just can't know yeah you know it's a team effort yes. and you got to trust in you, the you director do. and casting Everybody. the right people and the delivery of the lines and something maybe totally different on paper than it, just, it is it, on the screen i think yeah. it's one of the big it's the you know my two my favorite quote is you know the biggest mystery is how do you make love stay? Right. And I think one of the other biggest mysteries is yeah. a good movie versus everyone sets out to make a good movie. Yes. Everyone wants to make a good No one sits down and goes, I want to write a crappy movie that gets me nominated for a Razzie. Right. No, <laughs> you're not sitting out. I'm going to spend all my time doing that. I'm going to work on weekends, not go to my daughter's birthday party. I'm going to stay up Aww. all night just so I can get a Razzie. I mean, that is just not what you're doing. So- you you sit down and you think, this is the message, I, and I hope I can get it out there. And you just trust you can get it out there, and you hope for the best. But I don't know, you know. But and I think though too, <laughs> when you get involved in in real life things, like recognizing that it's beyond, like doing stuff with Michelle Obama mm-hmm. and doing stuff with the women's home. Oh, that's it, right. Yeah, that was the question. Like, is you know, it's like just moving. Beyond in recognizing that you, as you say, you don't know how people are going to be emotionally affected, but 
Well, you certainly don't think the First Lady of the United States of America is going to invite you to the White House. You don't think that's going to happen. How did that happen? That's what happened. I got a phone call. I'll never forget. I was at home. I was... It was the Writers Guild called me and said, you know, we had this inquiry. They called the Writers Guild because the Writers Guild, of course, has everybody's home phone number and every, you know, access to any writer. And they're a great liaison if you don't know their agent or something. And we had this inquiry from the White House. They want to invite you to the White House. Oh, my God. And I was... I was invited to the White House, wow. and I, 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 I went into the White House, and I was like, here I am. This is the White House, and I was inside the White House. I had White House coffee in the White House cup with a White House napkin, which I That's discreetly fantastic. tucked into my pocket and took wow. home the White House. I took my even my placard, which is anyone could do, I suppose, right. with the logo on it with my name But I know that's from the White House, even though you could probably do it right now. I know that was the real White House on my chair. But and I got to meet, you know, the president and the first lady and, of course, Vice President Biden. And I heard their passion for military causes. And, you know, I was I was invited to, to, to help launch the campaign. And that. You try to say that with a straight face. I have a picture at home with the card. I got a handwritten card from Michelle Obama thanking me. Wow. And I immediately frame it and take a picture and post it on Facebook and tell everybody I know. But you, you just don't know that you're when you where you're going to go. And yeah. I think that's the bigger lesson in life. You yeah. just keep showing up because you don't know where that road is taking you. You know who your words are going to touch. Yes. And just yeah. because something isn't happening happening for you right now doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Yes. And that's what I keep telling myself. Just because right now I'm writing the script, would I have guessed it would have come? No. Yeah. When I was in college and I was working at Bob's Big Boy and waitressing from 430 to 1230, putting a hairnet on and nylons and you know, taking clear nail polish and trying to stop the runs. Would I think that I would be at the White House? No. Right. But I kept showing up, and that's that's where I got. Showing up is a huge thing, though. I remember when I was the studio executive, I remember thinking, you know, 90% of this job is showing up. Mm-hmm. It's showing up. It's having an opinion. It's moving past fear to give your opinion at the right time in the right situation and and I thought any person could just decide not to show up, and many mm. people do. And yet it's the ones who are succeeding that understand the simplicity mm-hmm. of just show up. Mm-hmm. You know, just show up and keep doing. Um, all right, moving into we are getting down to our last couple of questions. What advice do you have for writers breaking into features and TV? Well, that's it's almost been this entire conversation, yeah. I think, is people get paid to do this job, so mm-hmm. why not you? Right. I always say, why, right? Why not? Why not you? I, why you, not that's you? That's my saying, too. I love why that. Why not you? Yes. And write, uh, uh, I think, I, I on a more pragmatic level, I think when you do write from the heart or write from something you believe in, it reads differently right. than when you try to falsify or right, fake something that you right. think will sell. I yeah. think you can read the difference on the page. And, right. And it, it, maybe it's a spiritual, subliminal, like other dimension thing, but people, it either leaps off the page or it doesn't. And I think that comes from truth and belief in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I say, I can read it. I can read it. I go, did you care about this? No, but I think this is going to sell. Right. You know, like, right. well, that, that's that's what I read. I read, I think this can sell. I don't right. read, 
this is from my heart or from my soul or I feel that this happened to me or this was a story I've never forgotten. I right. can read the difference, yeah. you know, the passion versus the sort of, um, like I said, the desire to sell something. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, I, I, when I was in college, I wasn't the most talented person in school. Right. Like, I think I surprised some of my teachers that I actually <laughs> made something of myself because I went back recently and spoke to UCR and my professor said, do you remember, I mean, I remember you if someone came running into late, late to class, five minutes late with your hair wet, just out of the shower. And we thought, you know, you're never going to make anything of yourself. And I wanted to say, well, did you realize I was also working from 4.30 to 12.30 at Bob's Big Boy, coming into home, doing my homework till four and getting up and being in class at eight. But they didn't know that. Right. So like, why would you say that? Yeah. But is the thing but that- look at me now. Yeah, the thing you that know. one and one of my professors, uh, I'll give her a shout out, Ray, right. Raynette Halverson Smith said to me, and she and she she gave me great advice. She said, "You may not be the most talented person in your class, but you're the last one here painting the set with me. Wow. You're the last one here, um, you know, fix making a program or fixing a yeah. a, a drape or, or or doing a costume or." Or fixing a lighting cue. She said, you were always the last person here. And I said to someone, she's going to make it simply because she keeps showing up and she does the work and she doesn't leave till she's satisfied and it's done. Yeah. And I never, I, she said that. She's your great advice. Your tenacity really is what got, is going to get, pull you through. Right. So. Speaking of, and I know that and my very last question is about any gold nuggets you've learned along the way, which I also think you've answered all during the interview. Um, what, speaking of your talent, like when you think about your talent in the beginning of your career versus now, do you feel that after several movies creating a series that you do get to a place where you can see and believe in your own talent? Um... Well, the first part of the well, there's two questions there. Yeah. Um, the gold, the nuggets, the golden nuggets. Yeah. You know, the golden ticket, and then um, the. Oh, the, I would love for you to answer but that the, too. But yeah. to, to, I'll back. I'll do the last one first. Okay. Do, do I believe in myself now? I think what I've learned is what I have a better sense of what I do well and what I don't do. Right. Well. So I won't take jobs where I know I'm not going to do well. Right. Like out of fear. Well, it's a job. I better take it. I'll say. I know I can't execute that as well as great, and I've learned to to to, to differentiate that and and know when I feel I can do it well and and know when I can't and and usually sometimes that's just because I identify with something in there that mm -hmm. I know I want to say and mm -hmm. I'll find a way to make the rest work around it because a lot of it is the work you know it's figuring it out, um, uh, but as far as the uh, to, uh, it's, I believe I answered that enough, right? Do I believe? Yeah, no, I believe in myself more enough that I know what I'm. I can do well and what I can't do well, okay. and I'll I'll choose accordingly. So right. I'll put myself in a better position now to succeed. Good. I guess is the right answer. As far as the gold nuggets, I remember early in my career, and I'd written Carolina. I had this opportunity to meet Nora Ephron, who will never remember meeting me, <laughs> but I've never. I, and I, it, they had submitted Carolina to her to direct, and, um. I happened to, to, to be able to run into her in person, and she she obviously didn't choose to direct it. And 
But she said to me, and I said that question, I said, you know, this is my first script and we're sending it out there as a spec and it didn't sell as a spec. It ended up being a writing sample and then a producer, Carol Baum, believed in it about three or four years later and said, hey, did anything ever come of it? And, and then she actually got it off the ground on her own. So great, great love to Carol. But yeah. the one thing Nora had said to me is when I'd asked that question, what advice do you have? And now that you've read my work, she says, this is my advice to you. She said, you have a very unique voice. She said, don't let anybody take that away. And the best way to not let that be taken away is don't take notes from someone who does not like your script. And it's, if you really start thinking about that, right? we get notes from people who want to fix it and change it and make it the way they want and make yes. it into something it's not. Right. And if you can tell someone does not like your script, stop listening to their notes. It's sort of like... Find yeah. someone on your team who right. wants to make the movie that you've written. Who doesn't want to piss all over it and yeah. make their version of yeah. your movie. Right. Let, if someone wants to make the movie that you wrote and is only going to help you get it better, right? they're going to make the best version of you. Right. Those were, that's when right. you listen. And, and I think that's what she had learned in her career. Yeah. But do not take notes from someone who does not like your script. Interesting. And I've never forgotten that. Yeah. That no, that is really, really good advice. It's I think it's certainly harder for newer writers to be able to have that leverage, but I think it is. Um, I think when you get to your place in your career, where where you can pick and choose a little more, it's easier. But I also think it will help writers who do recognize maybe maybe the love isn't there and be able to see through that. Like I when I what I say to writers now when I give notes is, you know, when I was at the studio in the studio ne network combination, there was an agenda because, of course, it's your fitting into their brand. Mm -hmm. And so that was the agenda. Whereas now when I give notes, it's all about, as you say, how do I make sure that everything that's up in their mind and in their heart mm -hmm. hits the page? And there's no agenda other than that. So I, I think that the way she worded and expressed that is, mm -hmm. is really beautifully put. Well, I think that one of the best places to implement that is really when you're selling a spec because that's when you control it. Right. And if, you have, if you're in the, you know, the, obviously the blessed position of several suitors, right. you know, they look at it, agents uh, uh, you know, may, may look at it as an auction and the yes. highest number wins. Yes. Where if you're able to hear maybe the top three tell you, articulate back to you why they like what you've written, maybe you would be able to choose a little more wisely and pick yes. the one that's going to make the movie that you wrote from your heart yes. and help you get it there. And that's something I try to pay more attention to now. Right. Like what are we, should we get in bed together? Is this a good match? Yeah. You know, yeah. be, because... Like you said, it's not, you don't. I don't know that you don't have that leverage at any given time. When you generate your own material, you do until you give it to somebody, right? If it's a producer, a studio. Yeah. And in and, the feature world, I would say there's yeah. more leverage with yeah. that. Yeah, I would agree with you. In the TV world, I mean, it's interesting because you. I mean, you certainly have had a taste of both worlds. I think that in the TV world, the writer does have more control, but you don't have that control really till you've earned it. You know, and I mm -hmm. think I think that um, I mean, ideally, I love what you're saying and I love mm -hmm. what she said. And I love the idea of knowing that writers can get to that point in life mm -hmm. where and where opportunity and talent meet and where 
they can have a choice mm-hmm. to go where they feel the love and the joy is and the person can see their talent, mm-hmm. which you've had that gift. Yes? Well, I think you can also look at it as your best friend slash husband, wife slash cousin who reads it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. If you could already tell, they're like, I, I mean, like for me. I I have never written a movie about a serial killer, and right. I never will because I can't I can't tolerate that genre. Yes, the slasher serial killer. I I don't need to know that men want to kill your me. Voice. Yeah, I don't need to know that. Yeah. I I go out to my car at night. I go grocery shopping at night. I don't want to know that there's a man out there hoping to rape and kill me and put me in a closet. Yeah. So I'm not going to write that. I'm right. not going to investigate that. And if somebody wants me to write that, we are not meant to be together. Right. <laughs> Right. So, or if I, you know, if someone wrote that and handed it to me and said, "Give me your best notes," I would say, "I'm not. I don't like the script. I'm not the one to give you notes because this isn't a genre and it's not a vehicle not, or yeah. theme that I want to pursue." And it, you, there's all ways to look at it, I guess. So knowing your brand is knowing definitely what, yeah, yeah, and finding like-minded people who can help you uh, better yourself and stretch yourself. And I've I've had wonderful producers like that that will yeah. help me make myself better than I am. Good. So. I think that's wonderful. All right, for our final question, and then we are out. Um, I so thinking about and we've talked a lot about, and I think you have a you are a very very strong example for both TV and feature writers um, in finding your voice. At what point in your career would you say that you came into the recognition that you understood your voice? And you you could hear your own voice and know when to use it. Hmm. That's that's like sort of ask when people ask me what's it like to be a female screenwriter, and I think, well, I've always been a female screenwriter. <laughs> I don't know what it's like to be a male screenwriter to tell you if it's better or worse. I think I've always had a certain voice. I think, like anything, you mature and you change just by life experience, and your voice changes accordingly. But I don't know that I would say I suddenly went, oh, that's my voice. I think. I probably have the same voice I've always had. Right. If you were to read all my material, I think what has happened is I've sort of matured as a writer and understood the craft more. Right. Um, so how to utilize your voice more? I think the way when I learned to trust my voice the most was, right. was during Army Wise because oh. this the immediacy and the speed in which you had to write entirely entire new drafts. Right. From page one, you had to throw something out for some for some reason. There was a. a I think I believe it was Perry Lang, who's a director on uh, on the show, and he said to me, "You know, I, there was a draft that came in, and um, it was thrown out, and I had to write an entire draft of fifty four pages, basically overnight." And he said, "When they knew I started writing versus when the script came in, he said I I couldn't help myself. I timed it, and I realized that each scene you had less than twenty minutes to write." And that means editing, turning it in, whatever you do, whatever magic you do. Wow. You had no more than 20 minutes. And I think that's when you learn to trust your voice because you didn't have the time to, to play doubt your, it. To play your yeah. mind games. You yeah. had to write it. You had to read it once. You had to trust how you open and close a scene. You had to trust your your voice yeah. and that you knew these characters and you had to turn it around and deliver it by 4 in the morning L.A. time for a 7 a.m. shoot. Wow. And I think I started that one at whatever the page count, whatever the math would turn out. I started it that night. And he said, that's, he said, I don't know anyone who can write that fast. And half of that is a speed, but also getting out of your way and just trusting yourself. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because you, you don't have the time yeah. to doubt yourself. It's like there's this William Blake quote, if the sun and moon should doubt, they'd immediately go out. The sun and moon don't doubt. They just rise and go down. And it almost like if you can get to that place as a craftsman and a, and a writer, you just don't doubt. Just do it. Yeah. Just rise. Yeah. <laughs> rise I love and shine. That. I love that. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that is a fantastic note to end on. Um, thank you so much for mm-hmm. joining us and being so open and mm-hmm. so honest. Uh, I'm very excited for people to hear this. I, I definitely think your message is going to resonate in a major way. Uh, it has with me. So yeah, thank, thank you. you. Definitely. And uh, you are welcome. So this is Jen Grisanti, and I want to tell you about a few things. First of all, the StoryWise podcast is now going to be available on Stitcher.com. And what does this mean to you? It means that you can listen to the podcast on your mobile phone. So look up Stitcher.com, and I believe it's under Jen Grisanti Consultancy. And that is very exciting because it reaches a much greater amount of people all over the world. And I also wanted to tell you I have a video blog that is available on YouTube. You can look under Jen Grisanti Consultancy. And the video blog is called A Day in the Life of a Story Consultant. And I give you writer tips and uh, tips on any type of experience that I have with story, be it TV or film or novels. So please tune in for that. And I want to thank Catherine Puget for joining us. This is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. We are out. You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. This podcast was recorded at the studios of Icebox Logic.